0: Hello and welcome to the Sheldrake-Vernon Dialogues with me, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi, Rupert. Hello, Mark. These are conversations which we have um, to do with things that we've been thinking about and we hope very much that they just open up your own thoughts um, and your own direction of travel. So please do share the conversations um, and let others know that they're taking place. Rupert, I thought we might um, talk today about what it's like to live in an age of machines And the reason this has come to my mind is because I've just been reading what I think is a fantastic book um, called In the Shadow of the Machine by Jeremy Nagler. And what Jeremy does in the book is he tracks, as it were, the deep history, the deep psychology that's necessary for there even to be the idea that there could be machines in the world. Um, Because he points out, as is quite well known now, that Um, mechanisms and cogs and steam engines and things existed millennia ago actually right back in the ancient greek world Um, but no one thought to turn them into what we now call the industrial age and he asks you know why uh, what needed to happen psychologically or in terms of our consciousness in order for that to be unleashed as you know it now so powerfully shapes our world and and not only you know what what's required but what's lost In the process, you know, what have we lost touch with in particular? Mm. So I thought this might be a a good subject. Yes, indeed. Um, Yeah. Well, essentially what Jeremy tracks is um, a series of kind of uncouplings. So, for example, he looks at the myth of Odysseus um, in Homer's Odyssey. This is, you know, how far you can kind of track it back. And what he notices is that Odysseus devises ways of escaping from various perils, solely for their own sake he becomes a crafty person but craftiness becomes uncoupled from craft Um, so the idea is before this moment craft had been very much associated with um, relating to nature and relating to the gods Um, so for example in ancient Egypt levering water out of the Nile on a kind of pivot was known about for many uh, hundreds of years but was never really became widespread Um, because it was felt that it took you from your relationship to the water and that um, a much better way of getting water out of the the Nile was to um, immerse yourself in the water, um, presumably utter some incantations or something as you took water from the Nile and then carry it out. And it was only relatively late in uh, Egyptian history that uh, cantilevers were used to start to lift water out of the Nile. Mm. And so that's uh, sort of craft um, becoming a bit crafty. Mm. Um, And Odysseus too I mean the famous story is with Odysseus um, When he gets trapped in the cave with the Cyclops Mm. um, And they uh, get the Cyclops drunk And they uh, blind the one eye of the Cyclops And then tie themselves under the sheep um, so that the Cyclops can't, you know, f- uh, see them and feel them when they, when they, when they get out of the cave in mm. the morning. And, you know, in the myth, the idea is that the one-eyed Cyclops, he's kind of closer to nature. He sees with this, you know, all-seeing eye, a bit clairvoyant. Um, and Odysseus is this kind of modern man in the ancient world who becomes crafty and sort of finds his way around nature, around these beasts and these myths and so on, and mm. um, rather than sort of relating to them um jeremy uh, traces a number of really quite ancient myths and then more and more recently to show how gradually over about 2000 years um the human mind certainly in the west came to a point where bang you know in the 16th century say um the industrial age could take off i could say more it's a really interesting book there's all sorts of threads he picks up but i wonder you know kind of how that strikes you
1: well i think it's really interesting and uh, one of the things that highlights to me it's probably a sideline to the main argument is that because of the spread of you know imperial powers and development programs there are cultures on the wor- in the world today where people were hunter-gatherers until like yesterday um, who were not leaving, living in a machine world they had hunting bows and arrows and things, blowpipes but they've now become part of the modern world and in a single generation they've gone from you know before Odysseus to the 21st century and now have smartphones and cars and motorbikes and power boats and that kind of thing Um, I was just I mean the the fact that the whole of this history which for us we can see spread out over centuries or millennia uh, for some people today is compressed into 10 years or something
0: yeah, and one of the byproducts of that is also a compressed reaction to this massive worldview change, as you say, um, which certainly, as my understand it, in some indigenous cultures, precipitates all sorts of mental health problems or alcoholism or, you know, real struggles. Yes. Um, and one of the things which Jeremy does track as well um, in his book is how asylums uh, grow and expand Um, In conjunction with the development of the machine, I mean, perhaps the best known example of this is the development of the automatic looms in the mills, particularly in the UK of Lancashire, um, you know, where suddenly people could work 12 hours a day and in particular in the service of the loom, in the service of the machine rather than the machine serving them. And at the same time, you get that the, the population of uh, uh, people in asylums. It goes up, you know, tenfold and then a hundredfold. It's really very, very dramatic mm. um, because people struggle um, with this disconnected life. They don't have this, they lose this sort of felt connection with things. It's much more immediate when you live, you know, say a life according to the seasons in the cycles and rhythms of nature. You know, you literally have your fingers in the soil. I mean, in a funny sort of way, someone like Karl Marx picked up on this when he, he noted that and um, we've become alienated from the material world because no one really makes anything anymore. The craft is almost gone. Instead, it's broken down into like a thousand bits. Yes. And you just do the one little bit time after time after time.
1: I suppose one reaction against it is, is the fact that a lot of people like gardening and keeping pets. Because those are things in our lives where we're not part of the machine world. I mean, I, in my garden, I use a spade and so on. But basically, and I have a lawnmower, but basically it's pretty unmechanised.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm sure that part of the boom in gardenings and, and, and keeping pets too, which too I do as well. And you know that, um, I mean, at this time of year, um, in the spring and summer, Um, the joy you get from watching flowers coming out and unfurling or the seeds you know pushing Mm. through the ground and everything Mm. uh it's quite remarkable actually Mm. um i mean you know it's probably because i'm so alienated from nature and other parts of my life but Mm. nonetheless i'm sure that that impulse to to reconnect and the the amazement the wonder that you get from from, Mm. from that connection is partly because of the loss you know elsewhere
1: So what does Nadler think is actually going on then in in this series of disconnections that have happened? Well, um, I suppose the most
0: profound element is that um, we just become blind to a part of uh, nature, a part of the cosmos, because um, in the machine world, you just don't train yourself to become alert to um, the felt sense of nature, say, or um, the consciousness which might be actually outside of your own brain um, and shared you know perhaps partly with other people but also with other animals with plants even um, and then you know with the gods with god and um, the, the kind of things which we often talk about um, and so what you get is either people that just never believe it's there they've lost what in the medieval world would have been called the contemplative practices which enabled them to be open and to immerse themselves into this deeper parcel sense of things um, and Only really believe very narrow ideas about logic, um, about empirical proof, um, again, which become kind of proofs unto themselves rather than stepping stones that open you into a wider perception of things. Um, so that's one thing, is that people just don't believe um, that there's this wider world there anymore because they've lost sight of it um, in the world of the machines. But then also you get sort of byproducts come in. So, for example, the uh, he doesn't say this, but it made me think about the, um, the interest in psychedelics that there is now, for example. Mm. And that often feels like an experience that sort of smashes through um, your, um, well, the, you know, the doors of perception suddenly swing wide open mm. and you realise there is a whole other world um, that it leaves you rather floundering, knowing quite how to relate to it. Yes. Um, because that itself is a whole um, other journey. But, uh, yeah, this strange world where, on the one hand, you know, as, y- as you talk about a lot, um, it's treated as if it, uh, as if um, the rest of the world is just kind of dead or non-conscious. And yet, on the other hand, there's all these kind of strange experiments and um, quests going on for people to try and get more of a felt connection again and, and sort of defeat the machine,
1: you might say. I suppose one really big transition was that there was this build-up with machines that you were talking about. In the Middle Ages, they had increasing numbers of machines like watermills and um, clocks, mechanical clockwork clocks. Um, but it's really only with the 17th century that there's a model of nature which says that the whole of nature is a machine. Mechanistic science, which begins with Descartes' vision in 1619 of the world as a machine um, then we have the vision that actually we're living inside a machine we're living and moving and having our being inside the universe which is a machine and that our bodies are machines too and animals are machines and plants are machines so the mechanistic vision it turns everything not just into machinery we use but into actual machines so we're machines, our brains are computers our hearts are pumps and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's very interesting because he he's, he he tells a similar story to that. Um, he he talks about the rise of clocks, um, and first of all, public clocks, um, you know, in marketplaces and so on, and how this had the first effect of changing the way that people experienced hours, because uh, in the medieval world again, and the hour wasn't actually a fixed unit of time; it was a way of dividing the day. So, for example, um, in the winter. The night hours were longer because you divided the night still into 12 parts, um, but the night hours are longer, um, and the day hours were shorter, mm. um, and then vice versa in the summer. Um, so this, again, this is a notion of time and the hour that uh, keeps you in a felt connection with the turning of nature and the cycles. Mm. But when you get the mechanical clock, um, this divides the hour into a kind of measurement, a unit of time um, that can be then, as it were, is then ready to be fed into machines. Because uh, machines, you know, need things to be equal, regular. So then when you have your mills and your camshafts and so on as well, you know, it, all, it sort of breaks nature down. And, and then um, you even get people like John Donne, the poet, um, who talks about in one of his poems, um, the invention of the, the pocket watch, mm-hmm. um, which is it like a, the machine comes a step closer. You've got a clock on you, as it were, um, that starts to do things like tell you when you're late a notion that doesn't really exist in the medieval time. It becomes a kind of bit of a tyrant. Mm. Um, and even to the, to the point in science where you feel the clock could be more accurate than the sun. Um, you know, you can, as it were, measure the length of the time of day more accurately with your clock. Um, and so the machine, as you say, starts to become the world in which we live and move and have our being um, psychologically. Um, and then when uh, Descartes and then people like Bacon and others, uh, Pascal, where they'd start to, the, the, the business of being able to make a machine, um, you know, purely in terms of the mechanics of it, and becomes advanced enough. As it were, well, the whole, the human mind is already ready to move into that world where, you know, God is perceived as a watchmaker and a deism and so on uh, mm. takes off. Yeah, it's this kind of deep, what's so fascinating about the book is he tells this kind of deep history of it. That almost in retrospect is a preparation for you know the machine becoming so powerful so now we hardly even notice it, we don't even think that an hour would be anything other than a unit of time you know
1: Yes. And I suppose the whole thing got a huge boost with the um, development of steam engines because until the 18th century all these machines were either powered by people you know like winding up a clock or by animals like Animal-drawn things or water pumps, where horses or oxen walk round and round, and and as a device lifts up water. Yeah. Um, or they were de- pa- windmills powered by wind, or they were powered by water water mills. And the early industrial sites in England in the 18th century were all places in valleys in the Cotswolds and in Yorkshire and things where there were fast playing streams that powered the water mills. But then, with the development of steam power. Uh, which meant coal could be used as a fuel, suddenly the power of machines becomes vastly greater because as soon as we started using fossil fuels to power machines, then machines became inconceivably powerful compared with anything that had happened before. So in the 19th century, the development of railways and steam-powered machinery, and then in, in the 20th century, the use of oil, the internal combustion engine... You know, leading to cars, jet planes, etc., um, means that machines just became vastly more powerful, incredibly powerful. And instead of Watermills and windmills, were still related to the flow of nature. If it didn't rain, there wouldn't be much water, and the watermill had to stop. And if there wasn't much wind, the windmill couldn't work.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, this is that that's, that that would be the sort of the the really crucial point for the psychology is that. Um, you still, as it were, have to do something physical, or or place the mill, um, or even the coal mine. You know, it has to. It's still connected to nature. It has to be near to the source, or you know, within transportable distance. And there's still, as it were, a human sense of relating to nature to dig out the coal. Um, or, to rechannel the water, he actually argues that the real psychological turning point, um, as opposed to just the power, which you know you're right as you say that that certainly happens, but the psychological turning point, the real final disconnect he argues, comes with electricity, and um, because with electricity, um you and i don't need to know anything about where this power comes from at all, and we don't even need to know anything about how it works we we'll just press the button um, and electricity, he argues um is is a very uh, um, sort of rich subject for thinking about. And I'd never thought about this before um, because what electricity does um, is it breaks everything down in order to then power things. You know, so the computer would be the big example of this um, where everything gets broken down into a one or a nought, um an off or an on, um, language um logic um everything in order that the machine can run on electricity which has either got switched you know off or on. he argues that that's really the big moment where um as well our psychology becomes completely detached from nature or ca- or potentially can be you know electricity enables us to to climate control in a way that we never could before. Um, electricity um, enables us to to have light on all day if we want to we never need to know that there's such a thing as night anymore um let alone see the stars yes um so th- and 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 what's very interesting about this this offer on world as well is it it's one of these ancient myths um which which really sprang out to me actually i didn't know this did you know that there's one day of creation in the book of genesis that god says isn't good i didn't i'd never noticed this before but the second day of creation god doesn't say is good the first day when he makes light and he says, behold, it was good. And then the third day when he separates the land from the water, he says it's good. But on the second day, God separates the water from the water and doesn't say it's good. And and the mystics actually have been onto this and wondered a lot about this. And what they argued is that it's an artificial separation. Um, it's not a separation based on nature, like land is different from water. And um, this is just a separation of water from water. And it's the second day. It's a binary moment. And the dyads, the binary um what 's me and what 's not me, um you know what 's right and wrong, what 's saved and not saved, these kind of artificial separations become associated with the devil, um you know so that uh, that the snake in the Garden of Eden, for example, was said to have two horns mm. um because uh, you know reflecting this kind of binary, this unnecessary binary division mm. um, so that, again there's a kind of deep story that you could in some mystical way, you could align with the binary world you know, that we now live in, um, which is very divided. Um, And, you know, even uh, people talk about this in relation to social media. Um, Some of the the critics of social media, like Facebook, have said that um, it's reduced our world because our responses are so often limited to liking or not liking, you know, to to retweeting or not retweeting, um, Mm. as if that's the sum total of our
1: responses. Well, interesting. I mean, it is in the nature of electricity that it's um, polar, I mean, you know, the battery has the plus and the minus and, and, and magnetism too, the north and the south. And then, of course, there's the polarity between electricity and magnetism, underlying electromagnetic phenomena on which all modern technologies are based. Um, yes, that's a very interesting point. Uh, the, the electricity is this kind of final separation because you don't need to know where it comes. When you plug something in, like a computer now or recording device, you don't know where the... I mean, I'm paying for green electricity, but it's the same electricity flowing through the wires, yeah, whether yeah. it comes from wind power or solar panels or nuclear power or coal.
0: And th- I mean, I wonder whether you, this makes sense to you in, with your scientific work, because he also makes the, the point which Heidegger makes, actually, about the relationship between science and technology and how it's often assumed that science enables technology... Um, you know, you get the scientific know-how and then there's te- some technological spin-offs. But he says, Nagler argues with Heidegger, that actually it's the other way around, that you get develop some technology that then science can use, as it were, to almost distort nature or um, isolate a bit of nature that it can then examine and probe. And the risk always is that you end up going down this reductive path and not knowing how to reconnect the little bit of the natural world that you've uncovered through the application of technology with the broader picture again Mm. and he argues that uh, an electricity particularly enables this um, because uh, again you can um, sort of chop down results process them now in in very large computers and so on Mm. Um, and it certainly tells you something but what it tells you how it what it doesn't tell you is how that relates very straightforwardly back to the bigger picture um, you know, so the siloed nature of a lot of modern science, um, where scientists become very, very expert in one narrow field, but it's not quite clear how it connects up again. You know, becomes a real problem. You know, so like the Francis Crick Institute here in London, you know, just mm. where near where we are, deliberately was designed with all these great atriums and forums in order that scientists might bump into each other in the hope that you know it would fertilise new ideas and, mm. and and begin to connect things up again. Mm. so it, it's, it's, I find it so fascinating the way that it has such deep sort of shaping of, of our perception of life and the world
1: yes it's very interesting isn't it? I, mean, it I mean the standard theory of course is that science leads the way and leads to these new technologies and to some degree that must be true I mean, when Faraday discovered the links between electricity and magnetism and uh, you know he developed the first thing that could be seen as an electric motor a wire that moves round when you pass a current through it in mercury i mean that does depend on pre-existing technologies to get the mercury and the wire and things but um basically that discovery which links electricity and magnetism leading to the electric motor has led to vast expansion of technology but i think in that case his work on the interrelation of electricity and magnetism came first. I guess what, uh, the, the, what the sort of the Nadler point would be is that it it creates a form of electricity
0: which doesn't exist in nature. Um, you know, so electricity exists in, exists in nature in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, in lightning, um, in a, you know, the electromagnetics of, uh, of living systems too, nerve impulses, N- nerve impulses, and so on. Yeah, but the motor, which then becomes so, as you say, so massively important in our world. Is a form that doesn't exist in nature. That's not necessarily bad in itself, but the point is, is it does it does separate us from nature in the process. Mm. Um, th- there's, a, there's a sort of consequence to that as well. Mm. Um, we know, which we know, we, we've talked about this before about um, when you travel madly from one place to the next, enabled by motors of one sort or another. Mm. Um, it's really helpful to perform a ritual, like going to a cathedral mm. um, and lighting a candle, just to really arrive. Yes, um, and as a way you're you're reversing. Um, the alienation that your mode of travel, you know, has, you know, for good and ill, has brought about.
1: Well, I wonder what change will come about as we move beyond the mechanistic view of nature. I mean, old-style mechanistic materialism, still the orthodoxy of science, seems to me in its death throes at the moment is, is breaking down in a, in a variety of ways and for a variety of reasons, as I try and show in my book The Science Delusion. But as we move into a post-mechanistic view of nature, a more holistic one, uh, regain the sense of nature as alive, the universe as an organism, not a machine, and ourselves as organisms, not machines, um, that will put us in a completely new position because we'll uh, hopefully move beyond the ideology of machinery which underlies the industrial age um, and the whole of our modern world with all its machinery. We'll still have the machinery... We'll still have computers and smartphones and jet planes. But we can move beyond thinking of ourselves as machines and our brains as computers. And that would be a new situation.
0: Yeah, I think that that will be very substantial um, because we're we'll just be able to imagine um, ourselves and then nature in a very, very different way. And imagining itself opens up new perceptions. Um, but I guess uh, he, he um, Jeremy um, Nadler argues towards the end that... Um, Uh, We also need to retrust our feelings and develop our feelings, um, you know, to gain a sense of um, how we might connect and to follow that and not be ashamed of that. Um, You know, one of the one of the big legacies of the industrial age um, is that you shouldn't trust your feelings. You should only trust uh, logic or proof, Um, you know. But that's what the machine, as it were, trusts. Um, We human beings uh, find a freedom Um, and a joy a pleasure in in the in the imagination in a felt pursuit of things Um, and i think that that too you you see that happening that uh through pilgrimage which we talk about through um psychedelics through um all sorts of things which um people are getting more and more into quite spontaneously hopefully they're cultivating a sense of being human and relating
1: that can use the machine rather than have the machine use you I think we're uh, i mean this in a way relates to a topic we are going to discuss next, um spiritual evolution, so I think um maybe we should um move on from machines at this point because I think that the it's such a rich and important topic um we've only scratched the surface, but
0: uh yeah, well, yeah, I think that's right, so uh, um. Hopefully, you know, I've, I feel conscious slightly that I've done a lot of talking in this, in this conversation, but it, it's a brilliant book. I just commend it to, to anyone that's listening. In the Shadow of the Machine by Jeremy Nagler. Um, and to open up this deep history and psychology of, yes. of, our modern, modern world. But you're right. It's, it's kind of becoming aware of that deep history that actually frees you in itself to, to perceive more. Yes. Um, and spiritual evolution, you know, as we plan to talk about, um, is certainly a way of picking that up. So let's finish there for now. Yes. Cheers. Okay, well,
1: thanks, Mark.